Where was Gretzky living in the uh, in the eighties? Who was he in playing the, for? Was he in the Edmondson? late eighties? He might have. When did he go to no, the Kings? It, I thought by the late eighties he, right? he was with the Kings, but but earlier he would have been Edmonton. <clears throat> yeah. No, he went. He was traded to the Kings in August nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. Oh. Do you ever see him play? He, I did. That was, that's no. kind of one of the. I was, and I had seats right down by the ice. It was nice. And there was a big brawl, and all he did was like he just kind of skates away and just kind of like, Yeah, okay. he's like, you guys fight. I'll be over here. Yeah. I'm too pretty for this. <laughs> you I can mean, tell his nose has never that. been punched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got like the enforcers a, around him. It's like in the back to school. When I get angry, he gets physical. Yeah. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the laughter. Ah! <laughs> the heroes. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters. And the honesty. What's up, Norm? My nipples. It's freezing out there. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring? Hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal, Spearsy. And the mayor of the 80s cruise, Chuck Coverley. And today we set the podcast time machine back to 1988 again to go over more songs that got to number two on the charts, but no further. Brad, do the uh, commercial for the cruise. Brad? Yeah, I don't think he's showing up. Uh, you want to do the honors, Your Honor? Sure. Join Stuck in the 80s in 2023 for a week-long trip back into time aboard the Royal Caribbean Navigator of the Seas. Performers will include Devo, Brett Michaels, Kim Wilde, The Church, Howard Jones, Living Color, Jody Watley, The Smithereens with guest vocalist Marshall Crenshaw, Vixen, Cutting Crew, Midge-Year, Autograph, Tone Look, and more. And first-time guests can get $200 of cabin credit just by using the promo code STUCK when booking. Just go to www.80scruise.com for more information. Jesus, Brad, what the hell? <laughs> I was here the old time. That's right, Brad in LA is in the house. And you still made me read the sponsor message. What the uh, hell, man? Suck it up, Coverly. That's just one of the constitutional duties of the mayorship of the 80s cruise. Read the fine print. It's all there in black and white. Just like the fizzy lifting drinks thing. <laughs> good day, sir. Oh, I said good day. I said good day. <laughs> How are you guys doing? You were doing great. Oh, man. Another close but no cigar show. I love these. Mm -hmm. Now I kind of want a cigar. I haven't had one of those in like 15 years. I don't think Katie would approve. <laughs> uh, anyway, so back in May... Uh, when you, I don't know what you were doing back in May when we did this, but Chuck and I did part one of 1988. And oh, we where was I? Man, probably. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess I was hunting wabbits. <laughs> yeah. So we started with three songs. And these are songs that during that year got to number two in the charts, but no further. So the, the ones we covered were uh, Hazy, Hazy Shade of Winter, What Have I Done to Deserve This, and Devil Inside. And wouldn't you know it, I mean, 1988, I think this year has more Close But No Cigar songs than any other year that we're going to cover. Or pretty damn close, right? It's It's got a lot. Yeah. There's only one more after this, really, if you think about it. Unless we do 1990. Well, you guys did start with 76, right? Yeah. 76 so. or 77, I don't remember. It was a long, it was a long, long time. time ago. I was young. <laughs> I had dark hair on this gray nonsense. It, it's been years. I know that for sure. Uh, I was at least a half inch taller. <laughs> you, you're, are you worried about that, Brad? Are you, you feeling you're not getting enough calcium? No, I just I know that I will shrink as gravity pulls me closer and closer to the earth to which I will soon return. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you really set the tone for this week's show, I think. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just trying to get in your good graces, sir. <laughs> We have three songs to talk about today. Uh, we've got Seggies, and we've got a really special message from our old friend Jeff in Cuba, uh, who's going to give us his review 
uh, the new Top Gun Maverick movie, and you're not going to want to miss that. It's at the end of the show. Really, really well thought out. I mean, really, you're going to enjoy that. So let's get started. Who wants to go first? We go right down the list because I can jump in at any time. You're up, Chuck. I am looking <laughs> for <laughs> it's vomits. The first song we're going to cover today is Shattered Dreams by Johnny H. Jazz. This song uh, was written by lead singer Clark Datchler, and it was released in March 87 in their native UK as the first single from their album, Turn Back the Clock. It initially did pretty well in the UK, hitting number five in the UK singles chart. And eventually it was released in the US a year later and spent three non-consecutive weeks at number two. And it's kind of weird the way that that happened. It, It hit number two on May 14th, then it slid down to number three. And then the following week, it climbed back to number two for two more weeks. And then it continued that slow ride out of the Hot 100. There was no Johnny in the band. The, the, what? They named the group. I know, right? <sighs> they named the group after a jazz-hating mutual friend of the three original members. And the irony is that they were discovered playing in a jazz club and eventually were signed by Virgin Records. Hmm. I mean, who hates jazz? Who, who has the kind of energy that they hate a whole genre of music? Reverse snobbery? That's the problem with jazz. It's all over the place. Well, it's like saying, I hate popular music. Like, okay, which kind? (laughs) The stuff they play on the radio. I don't like the rock and roll. Okay, what about this other rock and roll? The rock and roll. Apparently, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame (laughs) basically means any album that was sold commercially in a store the last 400 years. So, whatever. Right. Ooh, we got a really interesting version of Brad today. This would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the video, it was directed by David Finchner, who would go on to later do Fight Club 7, a curious case of Benjamin Button. Obviously, like working with Brad Pitt. Well, Brads are awesome. Right? Obviously. He also directed a ton of other notable videos, including Billy Idol's Cradle of Love, which Billy himself sort of kind of appears in that video. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. funny after he had his motorcycle accident. Yeah, right? so yeah. He couldn't really stand. Yeah. So he was kind of just on the screen. Just like kind of like taped to a chair billy just hold your head up for the next three minutes we'll get the shot <laughs> can i jump in on the video for this like let me just say i know this is my sweet spot for these this is talk about yes the video, yes but we get to 1988 and look the record companies have taken over nobody's taking chances in their videos everyone it's just like this kind of smooth blended video pap for us to consume with our crackers and, and this really fits the mold. It's black and white, which everyone knows means 20% more artsy if it's black and white. The piano player is moving his hands at one point, but there's no piano part in the song, so I'm not sure what the heck is going on there. Look, Fincher, learn what instruments sound like. And last thing I'll say, the lead singer looks like Tyree from Silverado. Where's the dog? Go watch it. <laughs> Wasn't they, they were on the 80s cruise. They were just on the 80s cruise, right? They were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't look like Tyree anymore, but he does that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what he looked like on the cruise. Well, you should know, Mr. Camera. I know. Well, I don't want to Check say. The files, Chuckles. I think I missed that show. Oh, no, wait, wait, what? Yeah. No, Chuck, you're everywhere. You're like I, the Roy Kent of the 80s cruise. You're here. Think, you're there. You're everything where Chuck C. Chuck it C. might have been during trivia that they oh, played, well, and I, I didn't want to miss trivia. Yeah, <laughs> I always have priorities. You've, you've won me back, Chuck. <laughs> Sorry, I took a long detour there about the video. What? Oh, no, that's good. When I do these, like, I'll go in and I'll write paragraphs on the videos, you know, because I want to make sure I cover because I know that's Brad Williams' <laughs> milieu, right? That's your thing. I just think it's fun to talk about it. It, it rarely is. have the option, so you know, and especially this one because it being uh, David Finchner, I kind of picture him like Federico Fellini, you know, like this crazy <laughs> pose. You got a little pencil mustache and striped <laughs> shirt and a beret. Oh, no. Exactly, black, easy black and white film stock. <laughs> oh, and he's and he's and he's pinching and twisting his mustache, looking right, through the exactly. lens. 
actually took two songs to keep this song out of the number one spot. The first one to keep it out of the top spot was this love ballad. That was Anything For You by Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. And that song was the fourth single released from the 1987 album Let It Loose. And it was actually the group's first number one hit, spending two weeks in that top spot. The band known as Miami Sound Machine had huge success in 85 with the album Primitive Love, spawning three top 10 hits, including Conga, Words Get In The Way, and Bad Boy. Let's talk about the music video, Brad. Let's do it. The music video featured close-ups of Gloria singing while wandering around the city at night alone, eventually ending up in a bar where her estranged lover finally approaches her. And it was directed by Maurice Phillips, who also directed Billy Ocean's There'll Be Sad Songs, Lover Boy, and When the Going Gets Tough, as well as Thompson Twins Lies, which is a very strange video, and uh, Pink Cadillac by Natalie Cole. Okay, I got thoughts. Yes. Uh, first of all, Gloria Estefan and Amy Grant have the same hair. At that time, yes. Absolutely the same hair. And I want to know what town she's walking in because they spent all their money on streetlights to light doorways and none of the money to light streets. Like The lighting right. in this town is bizarro. And then she walks into what is supposed to be a dive bar, but there's a Harvard banner on the wall. What? <laughs> I'm telling you, when the guy shows up at the end of this, it's not to get back together with her. It's because he wants his CDs back. <laughs> which he's never getting back no no, no. She's, he never she's already broken them in half yeah shadow dreams actually dropped down the number three spot the following week but made uh another run at trying to get up there to the number one spot but was stopped for another two weeks in a row by another sad love song about a dead or dying relationship this is george michael one more try cool things i found out about one more try is that it was written and recorded by george michael within eight hours dang i know talk about coming fast it was the fourth <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> easy working working fast kids listen <laughs> i know i gotta it was the fourth of seven singles to be released from his mega successful debut solo album faith Good which was Lord. released the previous year in october the third of four number one songs from the album and he is the only British solo artist to have four number one songs from one album on the Hot 100. So mm. pretty impressive. So the music video was directed by Tony Scott, who went on to direct Top Gun. It features George singing alone in a mostly empty room filled with metaphors for loneliness. Drop cloths on the furniture and the floor. Colors are all muted grays and whites. His inability to complete a drawing of a heart in the mirror it was just it was just a mess <laughs> and i'm sure you watched the video and you see oh, yeah 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 and i want to mock it so badly <laughs> i really want to mock it but you can as I, I just i fall into george michael's voice i know that the listeners know how much i like george michael's voice and it's oh almost when i'm watching the video you do kind of get in the trance where yeah you know, i had to go back and i had to watch it twice because the first time i'm going back and just listening to the song the one fact I can tell you about this is the video has 148,138,365 views on YouTube as of yesterday. I'd probably put another four or five on that count myself. <laughs> it's one of those that we've all been there, you know, looking back at a failed or failing relationship, wondering if it's worth saving. But like I said, I, the first time I put it on when I was in the research and watching it, I just kind of fell into the song. And then I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be watching the video and talking about that. Now to go back and watch it again, this time, you know, mute it so I can just watch and it's all visual at that point. But so many metaphors and, uh, you know, George Michael is an artist. He is one of my favorites. And that is one of the albums that I got from probably BMG Music Club, had it sent to my college or my grandmother's house or somewhere. I just played that album over and over and over. 
What a great album. Another interesting fact is that each one of George Michael's number one hits on that album has played the spoiler, blocking four other close but no cigar number two songs on the list. Oh, yeah. Uh, George Michael exerting his alpha dominance on the charts. But I'll have to check on that. But he uh, might hold the spoiler record for songs from a single album. I'm pretty sure that's got to be the case. I would think so, yeah. I'll have to 3D print a little trophy and place it somewhere on the 80s cruise. Let me take your sad, mopey bullshit. (laughs) Oh, damn. And and dip it in gold and turn it into an even bigger trophy because here's a sob fest from Richard Marks called Endless Summer Nights. I'm sensing a theme today, guys. 1988 was a sad, sad year, I'm guessing. This was a year that uh, my first girlfriend like, started to have a little bit of, of chinks in the armor in our relationship. You know, I went away to St. Croix and spent an entire semester down there away from her. This was going to be the big test. And it's one of those situations where I was so good, didn't do anything I wasn't supposed to do, got home and found out that she had cheated on me. And I'm like, you're kidding me. So 88, I was just welcoming all of these sad sack songs. Just like, let me just soak in this bad boy. I was bathing in them, you know, just like pouring money on me. But it was just sad lyrics from all these sad tunes. Poor Chuck. Well, this, this will make you feel better then. I'm sorry I mocked you, Chuck. That's okay. It deserves Not it. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Endless Summer Nights was actually one of the songs that Richard Marks recorded for his first demo that he was pitching around to all the record companies. Huh. He famously, for years, just got nothing but rejection letters from people. This song was inspired by a trip to Hawaii that Richard took with his then-girlfriend, future wife, now ex-wife, Cynthia Rhodes. Remember her from uh, oh, yeah. Dirty Dancing oh, yeah. and Flash Dance? You bet Red Riders. According to Marks, he wrote the song as a theme to summer love that fades when lovers go their separate way in the fall, <laughs> a.k.a. The Chuck Coverley story. Yeah. Film at 11. The version you hear today on the radio, well, I guess if you're listening to adult contemporary radio music or whatever, almost the exact same version as the demo, aside from maybe some synthesizers added at the end. Hmm. It was kind of one of those things that he's kind of always held a grudge about that. Any chance he gets to basically zing all the record companies that turned him down, he he gets he he takes the opportunity. <laughs> Mark seems to get a lot of energy from that kind of stuff. He seems to have a lot of chips on his shoulder. Yeah, I don't know if that just drives him or what, but maybe know, you hear stories like that. Yeah, for those who don't know him very well or his stuff, or you maybe think that maybe it's just a little too soft for your taste, I really recommend you go read his book that just came out. I think it was last year called Stories to Tell. And he, he talks about coming up um, as a teenager in the music industry and working with Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers when he first got to L.A. And he was even hanging out with Wayne Gretzky in Canada, but didn't know who Wayne Gretzky was. <laughs> it was like a friend of a friend. And the two of them became like best buddies for months on end and didn't know who he was until he was Gretzky dropped him off at the airport one time and people kept running up to him like you know you know wayne gretzky <laughs> he's like yeah hey wayne can you drop me off at the airport tomorrow sure <laughs> yeah see that that yeah. conversation happening that's amazing yeah. so that's anyway amazing. If, you're, if you're curious though go read or even better get the audio version of this book where he tells it he's had a very interesting career and he's had some some real uh narrow misses with some uh yeah filipino drug lord or something like that or it might have been a Japanese uh, crime lord. All these bizarre stories that he's got, that he's collected over his career. He's, he's not the mulleted, uh, marshmallowed heart uh, songster that everyone thinks he is. So I mean, the song Hazard is a true story, right? He killed this chick down by the river. And uh, that's what I heard. He's going around the country singing all about it and letting yeah. people know what he did. Right. He says people used to come up to him for decades afterwards saying, you know, did, did you really kill her? He's like, it's a song, dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, it was kept on the number one spot by this song. Wait, 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 wait. Let me just jump in about the video here. First of all, you need to watch this because I maintain that that video is peak mullet. <laughs> that mullet is, I, I'm sorry, Richard, I have to say it, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in all its glory. Other quick questions. Why is there no fist fight over this girl that just like leaves her boyfriend at the bar and comes over and brings a beer that the boyfriend just bought and gives it to Richard Marks, who's playing pool looking kind of sad sack. And then the other thing is, what town is this shot in? It's cold enough in the winter that you got bums standing around burning garbage cans to keep warm. But then in the summer when he's cruising around in his top-down Mustang, nice car, there are palm trees in the background? Like, what? Did that happen, or is he just like living this weird Harlequin summer romance fantasy life here? What what's going on here? Anyway, one song kept this out of the top spot. It's um, this song by Michael Jackson. Ah, yes, Man in the Mirror topped the uh, Billboard Hot 100 chart for two weeks and became Michael Jackson's 10th number one single, certified three times over platinum. So, nominated for Record of the Year, but lost to, this has got a sting, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Oh, my Lord. Uh. I mean, look, Man in the Mirror is a little bit hit you over the head with the message, but if the Grammys awarded Don't Worry, Be Happy that trophy, they're just showing we like style, not substance. And actually, we don't care if there's much style in there because that's a horrible, 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 horrible song. One more horrible. Terrible. Okay, Brad, you're up. I feel like we've got you Now that I'm warmed up, yeah, you got me on the runway, gassed up, ready to go. Okay, here we go. This is my song for this week's Close But No Cigar, stalled at number two, couldn't close the deal. I give you Hands to Heaven by Bree. This particular schmoopy tune in a show filled with schmoopy tunes or anti-schmoopy tunes, I don't know, got stuck at number two for two weeks in August of 1988. Wow. Cool for them. <laughs> this was their lead single. I feel like we have a lot of these, like, first song out of the tracks goes to number two, and people are like, this is going to be amazing. Just look how easy this is. Nevertheless, Breathe were one of those rarities that had more success in the United States than in their home country of the U.K., they had five top 40 hits in the U.S. They only had one back home, and this is it. Can you name their five U.S. top 40 hits? I can't name a single one, to be honest. I, I don't really? mean to be like dismissive, but... Well, How Can I Fall, you would remember that. Yeah. That how could I fall? Kind of like that, yeah, except in I... tune and one key oh. only. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other three were... Don't Tell Me Lies, which went to number 10. Don't tell Say me a lies. prayer at number 21. <laughs> and Does She Love That Man, which strangely peaked at number 34. This 45 divided 80s nation into two camps with the message on the back of the record sleeve, the true lovers and the true cynics. Why do you suppose that is, Chuck? <laughs> I don't know. Well, let me tell you, because it dedicated the song to, and I quote, all those who, in innocence, still dream of a perfect love. Oh. Oh, jeez. Oh, My Lord. I was definitely a cynic at this point. Yeah. Although still, you know, dreaming of that perfect you're, you're, love. You're hopeful. You're hopeful. You're hopeful. Oh. Yeah. 
the video for this is a strange dream sequence where the lead singer takes a cab, a London cab, I might add. You know how I like the specific information about the cars and videos. The London cab drops him off at a big house with strange weather patterns going on. And then he goes in and he does his thing. And there's all this kind of surreal nonsense going on. And he walks back out to the cab and then there's a cut and he's been sleeping in the cab. It's not really clear how long he's been sleeping in the cab, but the meter's running and he owes the guy 40 pounds and he hasn't gotten where he's going yet. Then the cabbie starts talking to him about how expensive it is to sleep in a cab and the, the, the end scene. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a weird one. What could possibly keep a blockbuster like this out of the top spot, you ask? It's this little number. woodwind (laughs) that's steve winwood he was on quite the tear in 1988 Um, that's roll with it was number one for four weeks i mean that year in the late summer the dog days of summer if you will this song was top of the charts since we talk about the charts on this show the whole time let's just focus on that aspect of it this was the last number one song that casey Kasem announced on his first stint as the host of American Top 40. He left in 1988. And then because it was at the top for so long, it was also the first number one for the next host, Shadow Stevens. Yeah, Shadow Stevens, you've seen him in some things. To me, Shadow Stevens will always be Fred R. Rated from Federated. It was like the West Coast version of Crazy Eddie. He would drop TVs off of (laughs) <laughs> you know, off of buildings and stupid stuff like that. People, I worked at the Federated for a while, and people would come in like, why don't you just give me that TV instead of breaking it? I want a TV. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, get in line. So Shadow Stevens, I'm not sure how long he did the show, but Casey Kasem did come back and do another stint as a host, which is, that's the voice I like to hear. I think you like to hear it too. Till then, keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the sky. The video for that was directed by Fincher. Again, David Fincher shows up. Not unlike the aforementioned Johnny and his jazz-hating friends. This one, nothing remarkable. Again, we've kind of blended all the joy out of videos, and they're pretty homogenous. It's a sepia tone number this time instead of black and white, which increases the artistic factor by 35%. And the band looks like they're playing in an old roadside diner, and they're having a good old time. People are dancing and sipping their drinks and all that nonsense that goes along with that. So that's all I have to say about Roll With It and Steve Woodwind and his Windwoods. Do you guys listen to Casey Kasem at all? I, I don't. I love to listen to it on the weekends. I'll put it on when I'm doing stuff around the house. If you have the uh, iHeartRadio app. Yeah, on, that's where I on, listen to it. Yeah. yeah. So sign into that. Just tell Alexa, Classic American Top 40 on iHeartRadio. And it's fun. They alternate back and forth between the 80s and the 70s. And I'm always hoping to catch that late 70s, you know, anytime in the 80s. Once in a while, you get that 1971 where you yeah. kind of feel like he's still feeling his way around the show. That's when I go back and listen to old podcast episodes of Stuck in the 80s, because I'd rather hear myself talk about stuff than listen to all that awful music. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I like to listen to right about now? The The Seggies. Hey, it's time for TV Party Tonight. We will play a snippet of a TV theme song from the 80s. If you get it right, you're into the drawing for the... You want to say it, Chuck? I know you want to say it. Uh, Postal-friendly bottle opener. (laughs) He's putting me around the spot there. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be embarrassing. You know, I don't really listen to the Seggies part of the show, guys. Yeah, I usually (laughs) fast-forward at that point. There was was someone who used to say they used to listen to the Seggies on double speed. Yeah. Do you remember that? Which would make the clues really hard to tease out. <laughs> they just got they got bored. They, I think they were trying to say that it's the same shit over and over again, our shtick. <clears throat> and that's why when you see that the show is starting to fall off the rails nowadays, it's during the seggies because we're intentionally trying to screw with that one listener who has us on double speed. <laughs> anyway. What do you mean? Log off that now, Mr. Rabbit. <laughs> Come back here, you <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Ah, oh, water, water, every hair. Let's talk about Bugs Bunny. Okay, sorry. Last time we did the Seggy, here was the mystery theme song. That's Beyond Westworld. Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines. You're just wow. making shit up now. What no, the hell? No. Um, truth be told, I was trying to look for something that we hadn't used before, and one of the longtime friends of the podcast is Chris Cooling, and he's the host of the Forgotten TV podcast. So sometimes I will go to his his podcast and listen or look and see as his show notes and see what he's talking about. And be like, oh, that's right, Beyond Westworld. So I thought, okay, I'll use that. And of course, only one person got this one right. Chris Cooling. Who could that be? <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. Is this where we do like postal friendly bottle opener laundering or something? I guess. I don't know. If, Chris, do you, Chris, I don't know if you have a bottle opener or I not. I think he does. I'll check, the, I'll check the records. If okay. it doesn't, we'll send him one. Okay. I apologize for making that one too difficult. Uh, Brad's probably editing this week's show, I'm guessing. So he's going to, I don't know. He usually picks the hard ones too. But maybe well, th- I'm telling you, at least I will pick something. Gentle listeners, let me just tell you off the bat. I will pick something that had more than five episodes air. Was this Beyond Westworld set in that Westworld universe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. With, with um, what's his name? You know the guy. Yul Brenner. Crichton. Oh, Yul Brenner. Crichton wrote it. So it does ignore the sequel, Future World. It just goes off of Westworld, according to the internet, oh. which tells me all the things I need to know. It better. See, now my interest has peaked. I watched like maybe half of the first season of Westworld when it came on uh, HBO. Oh, the new one? Yeah. yeah. I just, I don't know. It just, it, it falls into the category of too dark. Oh, yeah. It gets very dark. Oh, it, and let's, let's, it let's, never uh, lightens up either. It's, <laughs> it's dark all the way through. I want to address another question that lately we've been getting a lot of emails from people asking, you know, why we never talk about stranger things. I try to email back whenever I can, but let me just answer it for everyone once and for all. That gives me nightmares. I can't watch it. <laughs> That's fair. I feel like we did talk about it when the first season was We did. Out. We did. But I mean, um, yeah. And I know everyone's, you know, super happy. If you want for- to talk about it, reach out to me. I'll talk to you about it. I've seen the first three seasons. I haven't seen the fourth because I'm waiting for, you know, Katie and I want to watch it together and we just haven't had the time to Ooh, do it. You know what? It, it stops at a point. They kind of split the season into two. So if you're going to okay. wait, that's better because it's going to leave you at a cliffhanger that's going to make you say, God damn, <laughs> motherfucker. What's a hug? <laughs> and then, so you'd be able to watch the thing all the way through. I, I thought that maybe you didn't want to watch it, Steve, because it's like that manufactured nostalgia. You know what I mean? Like it's not eh. really um, the 80s. I mean, I, it's hard for us to bag on manufactured nostalgia when we manufacture some every week or so. No, but you're actually talking <laughs> we do about it better. <laughs> but, you're, <laughs> but you're bringing back things that were actually, you know, talking about things that actually occurred in the 80s, whereas. Stranger Things is filmed, you know. I'll tell you what, if this podcast 22. can get Johnny Hates Jazz to the top of the charts like, uh, you know, Kate <laughs> Bush is enjoying right now, then then I will walk around with a little more spring in my step. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Like, is, are you going to talk about that in another podcast? We can talk about it now. I, I, I'm happy that she's getting the love. I, I mean, I don't know the context of it. I'm just guessing it's a song that gets played a lot. Yeah, I don't want to give it away because you haven't watched season four yet, but it, it does feature very prominently for one of the characters. Okay. I feel like it's great that they picked that. And I wonder how that works out. You know, do you call and say, hey, we want to use this song. It's probably going to bring you back into the charts and you'll hit number two or number three. I, I think it got up to number three, right? Did it go any higher than that on the, on the U.S. I thought it was at the top of the charts in the U.K. In the U.K., maybe. Almost could have been any song from the 80s that they could have picked. Yeah, and you know, kids nowadays are just discovering the '80s existed. I think, and they're watching that movie or watching that series, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is, this is a great song." And I mean, I have opinions about it. It's okay. Even when it came out, I was like, "Oh, this is a great song." I feel like it could have been any song. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the, the the show that I'm watching now that's set, you know, not necessarily in the '80s really, but before the '80s, uh, the Sex Pistols show on Hulu called Pistol. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. How are you liking that? I, I like it a lot. That's more my speed. It doesn't give me nightmares. The wife watched the first episode of Stranger Things. I don't think she made it through the whole first episode. She had to turn it off. Wow. So 
it's a shame because there's a lot of great 80s throwbacks in that you know some of the, in the first season i think it really had that feeling that you were watching something from the 80s or felt like it was very nostalgic yeah um I, the last season didn't have that feeling as much i feel like season three like the plot line was just silly but i'm like okay let's go with it that's cool yeah i don't mind manufactured nostalgia it, it was the movie wedding singer that got me refocused on the 80s to begin with and that's as manufactured as it gets i think um <laughs> what what pisses me off is when i watch a show like the goldbergs and they screw with the 80s timeline like you know they're going to go see poltergeist but he's got a top gun poster on his wall that's right. impossible well it's always you know in, in september 1980 something you yeah. know it's, it's, uh, and then when he just graduated they had you know class of 80 something and it was obscured by balloons so you couldn't see what year yeah. it was no that that, that <laughs> drives me a little batty that being said you know good for them <laughs> anyway chris gets the 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 swag and uh pay attention here's this week's mystery clip if you know it email us at podcast at sct80s.com s-i-t s-i-t s-e-t s-i-t-8-0-s.com <laughs> do you know the first time i tried to email you guys you say s-i-t-80s.com so fast i did not know what you were saying oh well. you were like email us at s-i-t-80s okay well let me let me correct that error right now email us at p-o-d-c-a-s-t at sign S I T eight zero S dot C O M. Thank you. <laughs> Plus zero to talk to an operator. S I T S dot com. No, S I what? 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 Huh? What? Anyway. We'll be right back after this commercial break. <laughs> yes, thank you. Crazy Eddie's the man on the move with his Crazy Eddie portable blowout blitz. Get a portable TV, portable radio, video camcorder, portable phone. Get anything and everything that's portable on sale now. Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold. And we mean it. It's a Crazy Eddie portable blowout blitz. Get anything and everything that's portable on sale right now. Crazy Eddie, his prices are portably insane. We had a few minutes left. I wanted to thank some of our new Patreon uh, supporters. Here, why don't you do this, Brad? I can't talk anymore. Okay. <laughs> uh, we want to take a quick moment here to thank our new Patreon supporters. Uh, Sherry Fesco, Rocky Brunt, Chuck Whaley, Paul Dansman, Lee Edlund, and John Thigpen. Thank you so much. Uh, your support means the world to us, and it helps us to have the ability to create content like this. And... We've started creating some Patreon-only podcasts for our supporters. Yep. We just put one online last week. Just uh, Brad and I shooting the sh** on weird dreams that have been keeping me up in our first jobs as adults in the 80s. As grown-ups. I'm using air quotes. Grown-ups. Grown-ups. The scandalous $371 a month apartment that I lived in at the time. <laughs> Good morning, my neighbors! Hey, you! Yes! Yes! You hey, who out there remembers Jeff in Cuba? Uh, Jeff was a good friend of ours. He still is a good friend of ours. I was going to say, hopefully he's still a good friend of ours. <laughs> is he still alive? Is he with he's, us? He's, he's with us and living in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. But when we got to know him, he was in the Navy as an officer down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And so he became known as Jeff in Cuba. And he, from time to time back in those days, would submit like audio clips for us to play where he would address whatever the topic of the week was and if you go back and you listen to the red scare in the 80s podcast jeff is there for that whole he came to tampa bay at the time and sat in and we recorded a whole podcast with him so he's been a long time friend of the podcast he recently just got back in touch with us because he'd gone to see top gun maverick and we wanted to get his take on it because remember this Jeff knows the Navy and the military uh, better than anybody who, you know, hosts this show. So he sent us a, uh, an a amazing review of the movie. Bear with us. It's, it's nine minutes long and it has a lot of spoilers. So if you haven't seen yeah. Top Gun Maverick, maybe check out now and we'll <laughs> talk to you next time. Yeah. because There's going to be a lot of spoilers in the next 10 to 12 minutes. You know what, though? I ha I have not seen the movie yet, and I didn't feel like anything that he mentioned was something that we haven't already seen in trailers or, you know, just if oh, you okay. spend Boy, any I'm, time on social media. 
I feel so awful that you listened to that. You hadn't thing. seen the movie. I, I know. I can't believe we did that to you. But no, I'm, <laughs> it's, it's, you're it's, such a jerk. <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to say at some point, hey, guys, I haven't seen okay. the movie. No, so is that why you were sitting there with your hands okay. over your it's ears going, la, 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 la? Anyway, so this is what we I envision might be the f- the first of hopefully many to come versions of a new segment we're calling in the Navy, and we'll be back after he's done. But for now, Jeff and Cuba take the mic. Gentlemen, it has been a while, but. I really don't see that as my fault. I'm not the one who kept Top Gun Maverick in the can for two years, waiting for the perfect moment to release it. Nonetheless, as Stuck in the 80s senior Top Gun correspondent, I feel it's incumbent upon me to engage in a little bit of snarky pedantry. Now, this is going to be super spoilery, so if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, you might want to skip this next bit. In fact, even if you have seen the movie, skipping this next bit is probably an option you're going to want to keep on the table. I'll start with the things that I liked about the movie. I love the the practical effects. The flying was very visceral and physical, uh, much more grunting, far less snappy dialogue and witty retorts. Uh, even if there hadn't been a carpet-bombing media blitz about the actors actually pulling the Gs, I feel it would have come across as genuine. Even the CGI, and there was some CGI, the Navy certainly did not let F-18s fly between bridge pillars, was well-disguised and and well-used. I also liked how they addressed Maverick's atypical career path. It's no secret that the military is an overwhelmingly up-or-out organization, but there are exceptions that allow folks to sort of hang around longer than expected in the middle-to-upper ranks. One of those is folks who have very specialized skill sets, like, say, being a hypersonic test pilot. Another one is the intervention of a very senior officer, and Top Gun Mavericks plays both those cards to explain Captain Mitchell's unusual longevity, which makes it one of the more credible parts of the narrative. Here's a fun fact. Uh, My own Navy career was extended three or four years longer than expected because of the intervention of a four-star Marine general who put in a good word on my behalf. If that hadn't happened, I never would have been Jeff in Cuba, and I never would have been on this podcast, and wouldn't the world be ever so slightly worse off because of it? And cheesy as it sounds, I really liked all the old Top Gun callbacks. You know, pissed off bald guy says, I'd like to fire you, but I've got to send you to Top Gun. A guy who's wearing a Hawaiian shirt for no apparent reason starts playing great balls of fire, even though no one asked him to. Uh, Motorcycles are driven along runways where motorcycles are very much not allowed to go. And an aviator still wears a CB patch on his flight jacket, which, trust me, never, ever happens. Of course, there were some things that struck me as being a little bit off, a little bit strange, and sometimes just a little bit unnecessary. First of all, converting Penny Benjamin from a throwaway line in the first film to the romantic lead in this film strikes me as ham-handed retconning. Don't get me wrong, Jennifer Conley was great, the character was fine, you have to have some sort of romantic interest in the movie, but when she ends up being Maverick's soulmate, moral compass, or whatever, that whole relationship is left horribly unresolved, it makes the dialogue about her in the first movie seem really callous. By the way, who is her divorce lawyer? What kind of single mom owns a beachfront bar, a waterfront house, a Porsche, and an ocean-going sailboat? And then there's her daughter, who's a character that, well, I don't know what that character does in the movie. The only real interaction she has with her mother is when Penny needs help with the sailboat, and her teenager exerts her independence by saying that she won't do it. I know parents everywhere probably relate to that. Teenagers, you can never get them to help with the yacht. I also had a few geographic quibbles with the movie. First of all, San Diego isn't fighter town anymore. Top Gun moved to Fallon, Nevada in the mid-90s, and its former home at Miramar was given to the Marine Corps, so there's really no reason in the world to conduct pilot training at North Island, which is the Navy's only remaining air station in San Diego. North Island is home to the Commander Naval Air Forces Pacific, I've walked over that logo Mav walks over many, many times, but it's largely a headquarters staff location where people are far more likely to feel the need to read than the need for speed. Now, I get how it helps tie in the film to the original and it provides the necessary backdrop for half-clothed antics, uh, but it still kind of bugs me. 
On the subject of locations, it says under Iceman's photo that he is the commander of the Pacific Fleet, which is a very prominent four-star command and certainly would put him in a position where he could exert a significant influence over his friend's career. But that headquarters is in Hawaii, not San Diego. So when Maverick jumps on his motorcycle to go visit his old friend, it was either a very wet ride or maybe Iceman was on vacation or something. And let's talk a little bit about that picture that is so prominently displayed in a couple of different locations. Navy command photos are extremely bland. They follow a very precise, very conservative procedure. The lighting needs to be a certain way. The background needs to be a certain way. The pose needs to be a certain way. There's certainly no room for the sort of three-quarters, half-pouting blue steel look that Admiral Kazansky is wielding. Some of the biggest head-scratchers had to do with the big mission at the end of the movie. There's a secret nuclear facility that's being operated in true Top Gun fashion by a nameless, faceless, vague country that we just don't seem to like. Uh, And for a secret nuclear facility, we certainly do know an awful lot about it, Uh, where it is, schematic drawings, uh, that it's going to be done two weeks soon, and that there's cupcakes in the break room because it's Dimitri's birthday. And then they lay out in excruciating detail the defenses associated with this secret facility. GPS jammers, that's not a thing. Uh, Radar-guided surface-to-air missiles, uh, fifth-generation fighters. And then at the end, they just sort of toss in, oh yeah, they also have some old F-14s. I just rolled my eyes and thought, that is absolutely Chekhov's Tomcat. There's no way that's not getting flown in Act 3. And it was still fun when it happened, but how much more fun would it have been if they hadn't telegraphed it so much earlier in the movie? And then they describe the actual mission itself. And I'm not kidding, it is word for word the attack on the Death Star from the original Star Wars. There's a big, big bad thing that needs to be taken out, and for vague technical reasons, the only way it can happen is with small fighters. It starts with a long run down a narrow canyon at high speed, and it finishes up with a shot on a teeny tiny and yet oddly very accessible target. Uh, They did everything but describe that ventilation shaft as being about the size of a womp rat. And then, when the pilot actually gets to the target, he has a quick conversation with a dead guy and then scores a direct hit without using his targeting computer. Seem familiar? I can make another Star Wars reference about a pilot being told by some old short guy who's part of a fringe religion that he needs to not think, but do. But that seems like a gratuitous shot at Tom Cruise, so I won't. But my biggest gripe, and this applies to the original Top Gun as well, is that it focuses on such a small group of people. Now, I understand why you need to do that to facilitate the storytelling and to keep the plot nice and tight, but it still frosts my flakes. The fundamental thing about serving in the military is about being part of something bigger than yourself. You work with, for, and around so many talented, dedicated people, each of whom is doing their part. People in the military do amazing things, and it's not because they're any more patriotic than anyone else. It's largely because... Well, they're doing it for each other. You work hard and put forth your best effort because everyone else is working hard and putting forth their best effort, and that's what makes it special. So when I see John Hamm's Vice Admiral Simpson wandering around an empty base, like Vice Principal Vernon patrolling the empty halls of Shermer High on a Saturday morning, it really grates on me. First of all, three-star admirals rarely go anywhere alone. They are tragically overscheduled and are almost always accompanied by a parade of people looking to either bend their ear or kiss their ass, and that's why they have an aid in tow to keep all the plates spinning. And even if all the pilots are off playing beach football, a Navy flight line is a busy place with maintenance crews trying to keep up with everything that needs to be done to the aircraft, like, I don't know, painting on the names of all these new pilots who just showed up. The people are the best part of the Navy. And it's really tough to see them just airbrushed away like they never existed. But for all my snarky nitpicking, it really is a good movie. And oh my gosh, it could have so easily been awful. I mean, really Howard the Duck awful. It does all the things you'd want a Top Gun movie to do without overdoing them. 
It incorporates all the latest advances in modern filmmaking without making it some sort of computer-generated video game. So I'm very pleased with how it came out, and you should be too. How do I know? Because I'm still Jeff in Cuba, and I'm still right. Jeff, holy smokes. Cogent, thoughtful. That has no place in Stuck in the 80s. <laughs> Man, so many good points, though. Yeah, I do have one one small rejoinder to place out there. When he talks about Penny Benjamin, I could not disagree with him more strongly. I think it's a great use of a, of a, a one-line character, one single-note character, that someone that he hit on in the first movie, to a, a more fully fleshed-out character, maybe not completely fleshed-out. And let me tell you, I don't care where she got their money. People get money from all kinds of places. Maybe her dad, the Admiral, just made a bunch of money in supply contract kickbacks, huh? You just don't know. Maybe she was married to the Top Gun Universe equivalent of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos and is living off the proceeds of that divorce. Who who knows? I'll tell you what I was more curious about is how Tom Cruise, who is apparently still in the Navy, right? He's wearing the uniform. How does he afford this hangar in the middle of nowhere with a P-51 Mustang, which is like a $5 million plane? That's a fair point. Answer me that, <laughs> Jeff in Cuba. <laughs> Oh man, I love those planes. I I loved that movie. I you know it's funny because when we reviewed the the movie on the podcast, I I missed that Jennifer Connelly is playing Penny Benjamin. I it, it happened so quick, or my mind was somewhere else when it happened, but I I didn't pick up on that reference, so I felt pretty stupid when people started emailing me saying, you know, it's she's Penny Benjamin. I'm like, oh geez. Anyway, oh Z Penny Benjamin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, and I always thought that her name was Patty Benjamin, but that's her twin sister. Yeah, the one from the Peanuts cartoon. Anyway, that's all we got for this week. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. We have one more installment to do of 1988, and then we're going <laughs> to venture forth into 1989. I can't imagine what horrors await. <laughs> Uh, but in the meantime, courage, courage my friend. <laughs> in the meantime, Chuck, Brad, and I remain here, hopelessly stuck in the eighties. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening. Really whips the llama's ass. Would that be a great? Would that be great? You get sponsored by Winamp. I don't even know what you're talking about. Is that a Winamp was an old uh, MP3 player, like a Windows. It's not old. It's still you can get it. You can download it now. I'm I'm sorry. It is. It started a long time ago. I'm sure it has been continually developed since the moment it was written. Uh, No offense to the Winamp team. Love you guys.